sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, it's good to have you here today, listeners. We've also got Rob in the house because Nate is currently still on a cruise in Alaska. I hope he's enjoying it. I don't know anything about that. People seem yeah. to have fun on those. So glad you're here, Rob. Yeah, great to be with you. Great to be back. And uh, always happy to fill in for Mr. Larkin. I have also never been on a cruise, so I hope he's not seasick and eating as much food at the buffet as he can. That is another thing I hear. I, I want to go just for that. Hey, we don't usually talk about the interview before the interview in the opening uh, segment, but I want to today. Yeah, me too. Uh, because you, we don't talk a lot about recovery, although you're going to bring it back to that a few times, but uh, this was hitting your heart in a very recovery way. Tell me a little about what it did in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. So I, first of all, Jonathan, just a fascinating individual and we, his story's got so much to it. We didn't even get a chance to scratch the surface, but if you listen closely and, and I think some of you might be challenged at pieces or parts, my recommendation would be to keep an open heart and, and my recommendation would be listen to this more than once, whether that's back to back or throughout the course of a week or, or maybe even different parts of your recovery journey. But what you're going to hear from Jonathan in not only his story as he's continued to grow and learn and change and, and peek into the dark corners of his life, as he explained, he's talking about the gift of recovery. And, and I really want guys to hear this. For me, what struck me and what resonated with me is that I had spent 33 years of my life from age 10 to 43 of constructing a, a, an emotional, a mental, a physical kind of wall of self-protection around me. And I had to deconstruct that in, in, in through the recovery process, you know, whether it's you know, Samson or you know, therapy or story work or, you know, 12 step program, I had to get down to bedrock in order for me to start to look forward and to move forward. And through that process, I, I really have become or have created more expanse in my life. I've created less judgment. I have a bigger heart than I ever had. I feel more deeply. And that's what Jonathan's talking about. He's using different examples, but that's the that's the principle. And I think that every every part of the recovery journey yields or leads to an outcome that puts me in a place, I'll just speak for me, puts me in a place where I can now pick up the tough, controversial parts of life. There's another underlying piece that I think is important for our own souls and in recovery. And I, I don't know about you, Rob, when I get deep into my own work, uh, there is always a danger of me becoming incredibly self-focused and becoming smaller in my heart in certain ways yes um that i'm i'm losing curiosity about others uh and anyone who's done recovery it's it's kind of like going on a short-term mission where people that come back from a short-term mission often get angry with everybody else because they don't care about honduras 
Oh yeah. Why would you not care about this? This is there's so much need, and and they're so passionate. Well, that happens in recovery that you've just entered into this other place where you're like, wow, this is yeah. I'm learning so much, and then it's all you want to talk about, or why don't people understand these things? When it's taken me a journey to get there and a journey to get in, and so a, a lot of this conversation is about continually cultivating my curiosity. Oh, that was awesome. I'm alliterating. Uh, <laughs> cultivate curiosity because it is so important for me. I'm not just doing other people a favor. I'm not simply being more Christ-like and how I love others. Both of those are true. But cultivating the curiosity of why did somebody else come to believe what they believe or live as they live is so desperately important to my own journey and my own recovery. Yes. So that that's another piece underneath this conversation. We're like, this is the cliff notes. of. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't share anymore. We'll steal all the thunder. Yeah. I, I just want to say a, a, a very hearty me too. A couple phrases I thought that were super helpful for me. And you'll, you'll hear these from Jonathan. As he was listening to Aaron's wisdom, which uh, is always good for me to hear, he would, add, he would add to it. He used language like, yes, I agree. Yes, I co-sign. And then he would say, yes, and. And I love the, the – if I could find a way to use that phrase more in my life, right, instead of, instead of Aaron and I getting on a call and, and just figuring out a way to disagree with each other, I can look for commonality and then I can say and because I want to add to it. Um, anyway, that's one of my big takeaways because, uh, that's a beautiful phrase to validate truth and then still keep the conversation moving forward. I totally agree. So all this and more coming up after this break here on the pirate monk podcast. Hey, let's take just a moment to mention life works counseling. Our sponsor here on the pirate monk podcast this is uh, Roan and Eva and Roe Hunter working out of Madison, Mississippi, but serving the entire country. Well, these days, I don't think they're even restricted to the U.S. But whether you are an individual needing help or whether you need help as a couple, these are the folks who really know men's issues, women's issues, experts in recovery from sexual addiction, extramarital affairs, sexual brokenness of all kinds, porn addiction, false intimacy. They also can provide a therapy for depression and anxiety or for anger issues. And they are equipped to help with spiritual formation and soul care. In fact, uh, Roan and Eva will even work as a couple with a couple. If your marriage is at a spot where you really need some people who've been through the wars themselves and come out the other side, there's no better equipped couple to help you than Ron and Eva Hunter. There's also coaching available, so you can work either with a certified sex addiction therapist, a certified marriage and family a counselor, or with a certified coach. And you can do it directly in person or online. Now, the way to find out more is to go to lifeworks.ms, lifeworks.ms, that's LifeWorks Counseling.
Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are honored to have a returning guest today, someone we haven't talked to since 2018. When we last talked, he had written a book about sacred language. Jonathan Merritt, welcome back. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's been it's been a minute. The, the, it's been a whole pandemic since I talked to you last. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Are you still in New York? You were in New York at that time. I am. I'm, I'm in New York and maybe contrary to the belief of some listeners, it's not a war zone. We, we we're still able to go outside and, and buy groceries. And uh, but it is uh, it's crazy. It's gotten a little crazier, but still living in New York. OK, let's let's start there. Okay. <laughs> being a being a, a prolific journalist, I am so sick of journalism pandemic times i'm constantly getting calls from my parents because they'll read something about what's happening in my state and i'll just be like i have no idea what you're talking about tell me does journalism have to die and get resurrected or something or is it not as bad as i feel it is well, it, it, you know, it depends because in some cases, journalists can be irresponsible. They report things in a certain way and, and it gives a false impression. That happens. But I think in many cases, um, the onus falls on the person who's consuming the news. So, for example, people will, will not know the basic difference between reporting and opinion And Mm -hmm. so they'll read something and say, well, you know, the Wall Street Journal said, or, well, you know, uh, you know, Fox News said, and um, it's, it's just someone's opinion, right? And an opinion, opinion column, I do that for a living, it's part of what I do. Um, you're, you, you have a point of view and it's not an undisputed point of view or no one would publish that, right? It's you're piecing together the reporting that has been done to draw, um, your own perspective. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing, and I, I get this all the time, particularly in our, our family text thread, everybody has a family text thread. (laughs) Everybody's family text thread is an absolute grease fire. Mine is too. And so what will happen is, is like, you know, somebody sent something, one of the more conservative members of my family the other day sent a link from Fox News that was reporting. And the story was about some professor who a kid had done a presentation, a pro-life presentation, presentation from a pro-life perspective. And the guy, the professor like tore it down and cursed him out or something, right? It's terrible behavior. He was being reprimanded by the institution and all that. But what will happen is, is they'll take an anecdote and then they'll extract out a trend. So Mm. in the same way, someone, you know, let's say that somebody on 20th Street here gets, you know, knocked in the head with a brick, which happened just on the other side of where I live. Somebody reads that story and now it doesn't become one time a guy got hit in the head with bricks. It's like, you know, I hear in New York, people are just getting hit in the head with bricks. They're being pushed onto subway lines. And so if you want to believe a certain narrative, for uh, for example, liberal cities are, you know, flaming, you know, it's Mad Max out here, then, you know, you can tell a few anecdotes and that's really all you need to believe what you want to believe. But I don't know that that's, it's always the fault of the journalist. Do you feel pressure uh, to participate in that kind of outrage porn to come up with the story? I used to, Mm. I used to. Um, But you know, the, 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 the truth is, is that the longer that I live, the less interested I am in, in that kind of work. So I used to kind of, you know, be a kind of 
ambulance chaser, you know, whatever, whatever is happening in Christianity, whoever's the latest scandal, the latest problem, that's the thing I was writing about. And that is, that's just, I, I, I'm writing a lot less in general now. And that's part of the reason why, because people want controversy and scandal. And I, I've done all of that. And not only do you, do you first, you have to, you have to sacrifice whatever it is you have to sacrifice to do the piece, but then you have to go and manage all of the feedback. And, you know, you get this wave of feedback. You can mm. you talk about anything. You talk about kittens and rainbows and people come after you, right? So it, it doesn't matter. And and so I'm really tired. It's, it's not just the, as you called it, the outrage porn writing it. It's also having to deal with an outrage culture yeah. that no matter what you write comes after you. And that's just, you know, I only what, have one life. What did that do to your heart and your soul when that was just a constant pursuit to find the scandal, to find the things that were wrong? What what was happening on the inside of you? Well, it changes the way, you know, it's it's a it is a kind of malformed spiritual practice. And like all practices, if you practice it enough, it just the practice just becomes the way you live. It becomes the way you see the world. And so I had sort of forged a lens um, that saw the world and in particular saw the Christian world in, in, in the United States um, as a, a kind of, it was just always a problem. I couldn't, I never, I never even, my brain wouldn't even hold on to the positive things or, or even the interesting things, mm-hmm. unless the interesting things were also explosive, Right. And so I, I find that it, it had changed the way I saw the world. And as a result, I, I, I went through a period actually where I felt estranged from Christianity. I even, I even, funny enough, because as somebody who wrote a book on recovering sacred language, I found myself using less of it even after having written that book because it, it didn't really resonate with me anymore. Um, every, Everything that I said, I wanted to raise my own hand and offer the caveat or tell a story about how somebody had used that word in a way that was irresponsible. Or So I found myself talking a lot more about the universe and source and you know those sorts of things. And I, I felt I, I, there was a period where I just felt turned off by... The Christian faith and and Christian institutions, and what what I began to realize was, if that was how I was forming myself, then what was I doing to my readers who were reading everything I was writing, who were you know on my Twitter feed where I was just picking fights constantly, and I just decided that I needed to find some other way to do what I was called to do because the way that I was doing it wasn't working. See, I'm glad you said that because. The purpose of any spiritual discipline is to help form our soul, form our interior world. So if this pursuit of the negative, because we can find something wrong with every situation or every person, you don't have to look very far with me. So, I, you know, some are harder than others, but we can find it. And so if that is a malformed spiritual discipline, then it can only create a malformed internal spiritual self. And I was going to ask, do you think that the same thing that happens to the writer is happening to the reader? What happens to the person whose spiritual discipline is listening to 
five hours of AM radio at work every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you become what you digest, what you consume, and um, I think that it's it's sort of undeniable that it shapes you in that direction or misshapes you in uh, in a particular direction. Now, I think the you have to be really careful because the other side of that is the Pollyanna version that says, well, you can't really critique, uh, you know, oh yeah, you can always find fault. So we shouldn't talk about fill in the blank, bad leader doing toxic and abusive things. And that's, that's also not okay. So some of it is, is, is just discernment, discerning, why am I writing this? Is this something that needs, that I need to say? Is this somebody else already saying this? Am I am I um, just trying to insert myself into a debate, or am I trying to escalate that debate for the sake of my own brand? And 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 there are a lot of people who are they're not they're not even self aware uh, writers, and I think the same is true for readers. They're not self aware. Nobody is stopping to observe the patterns of their life and saying, like, is this actually making me more happy, whole, healthy, loving? joyous, patient, peaceful, kind, et cetera. Nobody's asking those questions. And so in some ways, the the downfall is actually upstream. It's that we're not not tending the garden of our own soul well. We're just consuming whatever is coming to us without ever being critical about what it may be doing to us. Don't you, I'm I'm curious if you, if you reflect on that journey from, from being engrossed in it. And then you talked about some reflection moments. There's two things that come to my, my curiosity, Jonathan. One is my own story. I turned to dogmatism as a a mode of self-protection. I'm curious as you kind of work through that in your own life, if you saw that as a self-protective component, maybe, maybe not. But then I'm also curious, was there a turning point? Was there a moment or was this a gradual turn from, you know, how you were showing up your brand to how you've evolved um, to where you're at today? And, and is that part of that part of that tied to your story, you know, from growing up? Well, I'll start with the last part of what you said. Yes, um, it, it, it is tied to um, to my story. And it was somewhere in between gradual and punctuated. It was pretty quick, but it wasn't like I woke up one day and it's like a birthday. It was more like a sunrise. You know, it did, it did happen gradually, but it was, a, it was an event. It wasn't this huge, it wasn't a multi-year process. I just started to realize that I was less interested and I felt less fulfilled doing that kind of work day in and day out. And I, I, I would sit down to write an article that, you know, back in the day, I could pound out an article in like two hours. I could pound out something that would absolutely break the internet. And now I would sit down and I would struggle with it. I'd say, oh gosh, I don't know that I want to say that. Do I want to say that? Do I think I want to say that? I don't know if I want to say that. And I would, I would start to, it would take me days to write something that would take me hours, which really doesn't work based on what people will pay you for uh, a freelance article these days. So um, I started to kind of um, move away from it because I wasn't enjoying it, but it was connected to my story. And the more that, the more that I began to process uh, the feelings that I had about my parents, my family, my upbringing, my childhood church, evangelicalism itself, the more that I began to process that and to move through that, 
the more that that my my interests and my excitement, everything just started to shift on its own. So that was the outworking of, uh, you know, if you were a Buddhist, you would say of untying the knots. Um, as I began to kind of untie those knots, everything looked different. And, and the thing, the, the, the way that I wanted to show up in the world looked different. You know, I had somebody say to me, an editor not long ago who said, you know, I used to read your articles and every time I would read your articles, no matter what it was about, I would feel like it was almost a form of patricide. Like, you know, that you were almost like in some way, even if you were unconscious of it, attacking the place, the person that you came from. And uh, I don't know that that's wrong. Um, I think there was some of that in there. And I think the way to the way to work out the feelings that I have had and that I have about evangelicalism and my particular experience with it is not to go out and do that in public by, you know, picking fights and writing articles and, you know, having debates on Twitter. It's doing the deep inner work to make sure I care for myself so that if I do engage in those debates, and I still do, that I'm doing it in a healthy way. Hmm. So here's a framework that I hold dear, and it relates to this, and I'd like to hear your thought on it. And you can feel free to to tweak it or crush it. Um, I really put a high value on being stoked because I'm a Christian. And so if I'm in constant fear and whininess about everything, I, I have to, it begs the question, what difference does my faith actually have in my life? And so I think that being critical is, is a mandate to have discernment to be critical. But that doesn't have to be a joyless pursuit. Cynicism to me is being critical with no hope, just is what it is. I'm now an Eeyore. And so I, I have to avoid cynicism at all costs while embracing being critical with a heart of victory that, yeah, this is, this is messed up. And we need to be agents of justice. We need to do stuff about it, but we can. There is hope. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the foundational thought I have as as a critical person who does not want to be cynical, mm-hmm. and to still keep my joy while engaging in real issues. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me your thoughts. You know, I well, I would first of all, I would affirm so much of what you said um, and cosign. Um, but I, I would say yes. And the, the two things that I, w- that I would add to that, um, one is about joy and the other is about fear. Um, the, f- the first I'll say about fear is, um, you know, there, there's p- particularly in binary spiritual frameworks, mm-hmm. it's like there's faith and there's fear. And mm-hmm. these things are kind of on a seesaw, right? You have one or the other. And actually... Um, there are things we should be afraid of. Like there are things that actually you will hurt yourself if you're not afraid of these things. I think certainly uh, if in the Christian tradition, Christian tradition, there's at least one type of really good fear called the fear of the Lord. Right. So like feeling fear um, can be, can be a good thing. Um, You should be, uh, if, if, if you are around a person 
let's say that you're a child or a woman and you're around a man who gives you a kind of weird, creepy feeling, who makes you feel afraid mm-hmm. on the inside, you should listen to that. It's not a time to have faith. It's a time to listen to your body and maybe to have faith in the body that God gave you, which is speaking to you. And, and, and so it can be really helpful, I think, sometimes to feel fear. To feel fear. Now, I, I don't think that we should live fear-driven or fear-consumed lives. We, you know, uh, fear can also tear us apart. The fear of the other is one of the things that's really, really tearing us um, uh, apart right now. Fear um, can have physiological effects. It can it can turn into anxiety, um, chronic anxiety that needs to be dealt with. Right. So fear can also be a terrible thing when it roots itself deep in our bones. But I would just say uh, the thing that I would want to want to guard against is a kind of binary construction that says fear bad, faith good. Okay. Um, I want to I want to add to that then. You started this back and forth. I love it. I'm so happy. This is uh-huh. such a good topic. Because uh, I've thought a lot about fear and whether or not it's good or bad. Again, either or kind of language. Fear is natural. Fear comes. You brought up the, the woman thing. Man, back in the day when I was studying violent crime awareness, one of the most stated uh, things from victims was I had a feeling. And I just didn't act on it. So it's, it's a very real thing. However, even the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think, okay, I'm taught at a young age, look both ways before you cross the road. Why? Because I should be afraid of getting hit by a bus. It's a, it's a fear-based thing I do. But at this point in my life, I look both ways before I get my mail, not because I'm afraid of getting hit, but because I became wise because of that fear. And so now I can have the same good response that I had at the beginning because of fear, except without the byproducts of fear, because wisdom has taken the place of that emotion that, as you mentioned, has a lot of effects and byproducts that I don't want in my life. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 it's, you know, you can, you can sort of stack the deck by which analogy you choose. Because, for example, you're right. You, you have to look when you get your mail, but you should always be afraid of a rattlesnake. You're never going to just sort of have wisdom about the way you should jump, you should run, you should, you should scram. If you see, if a rattlesnake is coming for you, if a rhino is charging you, if there is a sex predator who is shutting the door and locking it behind you, you should be afraid. And in fact, if you're not afraid, that's the problem. We call you a sociopath. People right. who do not feel those kinds of emotions, they're the ones that are actually problematic. So I, I think, yeah. again, yes, yes, and. I do think that we learn to tackle our fears. That fear, fear is a fortune teller. Fear will, fear will take all of our experiences, filtering it through a negativity bias, and it will predict a future that is often distorted. It, mm-hmm. it, it never factors in the possibility that God's grace will show up, uh, your resilience, your strength, um, uh, a visit from a friend at just the right time, all the things that actually happen when we live into the things we're afraid of, fear never takes that into consideration, right? It's, it's telling stories that are distorted and false. And so we do, I think, as we grow and we get older, we have to think more about what we're afraid of, and we have to begin to challenge the narratives that fear is spinning. But, you know, even if you look at some of the great stories of fear in the Bible, I think about 
the story of um, Jesus calming the storm in the Gospel of Luke. They were afraid. Jesus calmed the storm, and they're still afraid. The text says now they're afraid at what this person has just done. They're trembling right. and afraid of this other person. It wasn't that Jesus showed up. Now they all have faith and the fear has gone away. When we see things that are uncertain, we feel fear. That's it, it, It's natural yeah. and wired into our bodies. But I think what can happen is, is when we live into the stories and the right. predictions, that fear, fear then uh, stops uh, being a sensation and becomes what the, the, the text would say, a spirit. A spirit of fear, an all pervasive thing that then begins to shape our actions, our decisions, our behaviors. Now it has taken over. So that is where I think fear of the Lord chases that out. It pushes that fear out because we realize we don't have to be controlled by these narratives, that there is something else at work here that fear is not accounting for. Love it. All right. You said you were going to do two. That was fear. You wanted to say something about joy as well. Yeah, I think the other thing I really like, I really, I really like what you're saying about maintaining your joy. And, and you know, I hope I echoed that a little bit, that I was losing the joy in my work. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should, we should, if at all possible, have as much joy as possible in, in our vocations and our relational lives, et cetera. And we should work for that. There's obviously a lot in our tradition that talks about that. On the other side, I do think, um, and I think about the work, um, I'm looking at a book on my shelf. One of my favorite books is Barbara Brown Taylor's Learning to Walk in the Dark, where she talks about how Western Christianity sort of has an addiction to what she calls a full solar spirituality. The idea that we should just get in the joy of the Lord, we should just stay in the joy of the Lord, we should just be in the joy of the Lord all the time. Mm. Um, When you look at, for example, um, uh, the rituals in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, there were rhythms Mm-hmm. Um, there were rhythms where joy would take a back seat to righteous anger, for example, or mm-hmm. deep, or, deep or grief, grief and mourning. Yeah. Um, I think the wisdom of Solomon says there's a season for everything under the sun, and there are times to celebrate, and we should do that intentionally. And also, uh, to riff on, on Taylor, there are things that can be learned in the dark that you could never learn in the light. And if you're always trying to run away from the light and do the thing that gives you that the 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 most um, exuberance and elation or what we would call joy, we are actually missing out on the full experience of the Christian life. You know, as the as the the, the prophet Isaiah said, God is the God of both darkness and light. That mm-hmm. we can find God in both of these places, in the joy and in the morning, even though they may balance out even one, you may feel one at night and the next, the, ne- the next, the next day when you, when you wake up. But both of those things, I think, are really important to invite, invite mm-hmm. in the full range of experience because there are a lot of things that I see in the world and the natural response to those things, I don't think is just joy. Mm-hmm. So th- here's the irony of that whole thing. Uh, I, I agree with what that author was saying that the Christianity I have experienced is always, you know, yep, a loved one died, but hey, they're in a better place. Let's try to cheer you up as soon as possible. <laughs> um, but it is such a veneer. I don't even like using the word joy for it because it cheapens that beautiful word. It's a whole lot of smiley faces and don't show the pain piece. And so, Yes, that is a part of Christendom, while at the same time, the more conversations I have with people, I find 
a lot of hopelessness and lack of that deep rooted settledness. And I think it kind of comes back to joy is not listed as one of those three eternal things. We've got faith and hope and love, and those are all monsters. And this comes back to that attachment to hope. Hope is the Hope is in part only necessary because of the darkness you're talking about, and that within the darkness there can be grief and righteous anger that still moves towards this, uh, the settledness word just feels right, that it's not flying off the handle, it's not out of control, it's not controlling me but it's settled and it keeps moving back to this place where I can take a breath and say, all right, I actually do believe that God is. Yeah. Whatever that means, I don't know what it's going to mean, but I believe that. And so, yeah, it's a little less exuberant. I think when we insist on exuberance being attached to joy, we quickly find ourselves in the shallow end of that <laughs> experience. Well, and what a lot of people, when a lot of people talk about joy in the Christian world, what I find is, is what they're really talking about is hope. It's mm-hmm. the idea that the way it is today is not the way it will always be, that you do have a trust that there is always almighty love, a force that cannot be seen, that is working on your behalf and in your favor, that is doing good things, that is that is bringing forth all of the fruits of the Spirit in this world in a way that is mysterious and inexplicable. But we trust, we trust that after death always comes resurrection, which is sort of this sort of keystone Christian belief. So hope is something that is durable and enduring, I think, in a way that joy is 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 not exactly. But mm-hmm. many people, when they speak about um, hope or speak about joy, what they're really speaking about um, is 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 hope. And and I'll say another thing, I think in in many cases, People and they'll you know, wallpaper it in in like spiritual language, but this the idea to be joy 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 all the time is really a camouflage for mm-hmm. their own fear, where they say, "What would happen if I turned toward the darkness and embrace that? What would happen if I opened up that box and peered inside?" And so instead, they create this joy factory, this perpetual joy factory, and what it really is, it's it's avoidance. It's avoidance from the hard things, and they're so afraid of the hard things that they are manufacturing, quote-unquote, joy all the time. And so the other thing is, is it can be a kind of Medicaid, a, a, a strategy to medicate yourself. Isn't that, I mean, isn't, you just brought that right back to the center of, of the work that those of us in, in Samson do. I mean, it is, that is the work, the hard work of recovery that you just described I think use language, Jonathan, that unlocked, I think, what a lot of us experience. And that's this, this whole journey of, you know, admitting from admitting to we're helpless to doing a, a rigorous inventory to, uh, you know, to making amends. It's hard work that requires on an honest evaluation of those dark places in my life. And what I find, what I found for myself that kept me from moving forward in that recovery journey, and I, I see it with guys that I walk with, I see it on our Slack channel, um, 
that refusal or the masking of what might be inside those dark caves or facing that fear or facing that and relabeling or re-wallpapering it as you described to somehow overcome it because maybe that's how I grew up. That's how I was taught. That's what my Sunday school teacher told me. That's what my youth group told me. I need to somehow choose happiness as a way to get to the other side of my addiction as opposed to slowing down, letting my story and my experience breathe and actually getting curious about how did I get here? I, I think you nailed that in such a, such a healthy way. I, I'm curious if, you know, as you think about your own story, is that your experience as a young man and getting to this place of, of understanding, what was that, what was that journey like for you? Hmm. Well, one of the one of the sort of breaking points in my life came in December of 2019 where all of the pressure and the striving and the sort of numbing came to a head and i had a bit of a breakdown and so i ended up going away to uh, a center in tennessee uh, where I did a, a kind of intensive program uh, there and began to open up those boxes and look inside in a space that was safe, in a space that had um, therapists uh, who could help me understand what was going on. And uh, it was that process uh, of, of healing a lot of that trauma, of doing the grief work, that's the other thing is like there there are things that can be that need to be healed or put back together and joy as wonderful as joy is um it, it it's not up to the task it's not intended for that but grief is made for that oh, grief yes. can actually do that work it can yes. in sort of lance the wound and clean out the pus right um uh, <laughs> honesty, just taking an honest look at how bad something is, um, that that becomes oftentimes the the first step. You know, an, an honest appraisal of the way things r really, really are. And so, I think that for me, that that's what it took in my life. That began the process, which has continued now for the last for the last three and a half years. So you've described this new season where the emotional content is so different while at the same time you're still engaging. You you love to be at the at the center, at the crux of people who are at, at loggerheads with each other. Whether it's political, talking about sexuality, all of those things and yet it feels different now. Walk us through a little bit, and you can pick any of those topics you want. Um, I see a lot of unwise behavior for people that want to engage in those kinds of topics. What have you learned that you can teach others as it comes to conversations about just dangerously explosive things happening in our culture? Well, I think one one is is that um, and, and and it's a discipline, which is that some discussions in certain forums with certain people 
are um, they are doomed from the start. If if there are people who are not interested in dialoguing, in learning, in considering the possibility that there may be information they haven't considered, then I don't bother having those conversations. And I used to do that. I used to sit on, you know, I mean, pick a name like Denny Burke or like Al Mohler. I mean, why, why, why am I debating with these people? These people are not, these are not people who have ever considered the possibility that that they may be wrong, that there may be, you know, it was like they were 23 in a fundamentalist seminary and they figured out all of Christianity and their theology has never changed since that day. That's astounding. That's an astounding thing that all of their life, if they've truly lived, has never chipped away at their theology. Um, That tells me something. It tells me that that's not a good conversation partner. Now, I can enter into it and I can score some points, but that's ego. That's that's not about the conversation. That's about me. That's mm-hmm. about making me look good. Look, oh, you got him. You really got him with that one. You really got him. You trapped him in his own words. You nailed him. And um, that's okay, so, I'm so, not so you just gave practical step number one. I need to check myself before mm-hmm. I start dancing with another person. Yeah, I would Why say it's, am I doing bi- it's bi-directional. It's both your motivation and their willingness to learn uh, or to engage or to consider alternative viewpoints. And and I'm doing both of those diagnostics simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that and that goes for me too uh, as well, right? If if I already have my mind made up, and there are some things like I have my mind made up about, right? Like if you. Oh, what would be a great example? Like if you wanted to convince me that like um, uh, people of color are less intelligent than white people. There, there are people who used to believe that. There are people today, I'm sure, who still believe that. That ship has really sailed for me. Very, I have no, there's no, I'm beyond that conversation. So I'm not going to engage that's that it would it would it would not make any sense for me to engage in dialogue about something that I'm not willing I am not at this point willing to consider have a have a conversation with somebody who wants to tell me that I'm wrong about that uh, that is just case closed that's over and mm-hmm. so there are some of those issues for me that they're over um, there are then other issues that I'm willing to be wrong about those uh, about those things. And so I want to hear people, I'll tell you one right now that's really controversial, but especially in my, in the LGBTQ community, um, you know, the, the, the issue of gender identity, um, Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I have lots of trans friends. I, I love my trans friends. I support my trans friends. I believe transgenderism is real, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And also, um, I have questions and concerns about what is is uh, being done therapeutically to minors. And I want to have conversations about that and I want to ask those questions. And um, I'm willing to, I have a I have a position personally, but I'm willing to to hear what other people have to say and engage in in conversation about about that topic because it's a very new conversation. And um, it's not like, you know, the race example I use, which has a long history of 
activism and theology and public debate and conversation around it. This is really, really fresh and new. There are a lot of people out there who've been having this conversation for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you talk to them and you think they're running like a program on this at Johns Hopkins or something, you know, they're, they're, they're like a, an insurance adjuster, but you would think that they're an expert on, uh, on gender. And so you have to be really, really careful. Like, I don't want to engage in debate with that person, but I would love to find people that I can talk to in a space where, you know, you're not going to get canceled for asking a question. Uh, I, 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 I can engage in those debates. And when I engage in those debates, uh, whenever I engage in a debate where I'm, where I'm willing to consider other opinions, then I always seek first to understand and mm-hmm. seek only after that to be understood. I really want to know, like, tell me, yeah, because, because we malign people so often, Yes, you know, it's like everybody becomes the enemy. And, um, I find that if you really dig down deep, not, it's not true of everybody, but most of us kind of want the same things. Yeah. There's, there's commonality. Absolutely. Let me, let me, you touched on something that's so important. And I think that maybe most of us do it unconsciously. And I used to pick on the church for this until I started working in an organization that was kind of central to, to a part of the gay community. And I learned that it was the exact same there as it was in the church. And that is that some questions are off limits that to ask the question in the church, and there's a bunch of questions um, a young person could come and start, talking about evolution, for example, and all of a sudden it's not even discussing what the question is. It's how could you, you're betraying God. And you're like, well, okay, that question was off limits. You just brought up a question that to many of my friends would be this automatic, you're not allowed to ask that question. You're only allowed to support. What is the danger of any community having off limit questions? Well, if you study the history of authoritarianism, that's where it always begins. So I'd say that um, anytime you enter in a culture where a question um, is unaskable, uh, you are in a bad, you're, you're in a dangerous place. Um, it, to silence people, um, that's, uh, that's scary to me. Um, now, the way to, to shape a society is to have full-throated conversations about all kinds of questions. And we have to have thick enough skin to allow those questions to be asked, even if they're personal to us. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, if you, I don't know if you've, you've listened to, and maybe I shouldn't even recommend this, but there was a podcast recently I listened to called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And uh, she was interviewed on this. And, you know, this is someone who's been basically canceled by many people in my community. And I'm listening to her talk. And this is not a MAGA hat wearing, knuckle dragging ogre. This is somebody who's like read books on the topic and is asking questions and is being told you cannot ask those questions. And, um, that is worrisome to me. I don't agree with J.K. Rowling, by the way, on a lot of what J.K. Rowling believes. And also, I think it's really dangerous for us to take a person like that and scapegoat them. But 
I'll, I'll say one other thing, and it's just a theory. I think a lot of this is actually driven by former fundamentalists. Uh, people in the gay community are a great example. A lot of people in my community grew up Catholic. They grew up evangelical. They were deeply wounded by their churches and by their faith communities, and they've left those behind. But you know what they didn't leave behind? The tools that those communities gave them, the tricks, the binary, the binary thinking, the us versus them. Now it still is all a battle of good versus evil. The only difference is, is that the people you thought were good are now the evil people. And so it, it is the tools of fundamentalism that are being used in the opposite direction by people who learn those all too well. Yes. Mm -hmm. And beneath our fear of questions, uh, is just fear. It's the way to control. If somebody asks this question, maybe the answer will lead them away from a place that our group or I can control them. I, you know, I would say I would say it's actually more like um, a braided thread of fear. Mm-hmm. So there's fear of change. That's really scary for people. Um, there's the fear of loss. If this thing is true, what would I have to let go of? Mm-hmm. Um, it's fear of the other. If, if this is true, would I, wh- what kinds of people might I have to incorporate into my life? Um, it's fear of learning something new. Uh, there are a lot of people who just kind of, they're tired. They're tired of, of, the, of the rate of new information that is, is coming at us in the 21st century. So it's this like... It's an amalgamation of fears or a braided thread of fears together that that's what makes it so strong, so powerful, is that it is a combination of some of the most powerful fears all tied together. Mm. Mm. So how do I address that? If I can have enough self-awareness to recognize, man, I'm I'm afraid of this topic. I, I would rather tie off my balloon with the amount of air that's in it and not have any new new information breathed into it because I'm afraid it's going to pop. How? What are some things I can do to start being released from that and engaging others? Well, I think the one of the one of the things that you can do is um, you you can simply deconstruct your own experience. We use that word a lot to talk about faith, but like you ask the question, like if I were to kind of disassemble this and I were to be really honest, what is this about? Now we have ways of explaining this, right? This is about the truth. Like this is about the capital T truth. Um, No, this is about you being right. Or this is about, right? Like, are there other possibilities for what's driving this? So looking down in, in what has been called the cave of your own heart, to look deep down in the recesses of the cave of your own heart and asking that hard question, okay, maybe this is for you about the capital T truth. And also, what else is there? And let's mm-hmm. deal with some of the other things there that might be twisting the way that you're engaging with these issues. Second thing I would say is... Right, is you- and, and maybe before you go to the second thing, maybe a way to engage that uh, or jumpstart that is to ask, what do I think it would cost me to not hold this to the place where it can't even be questioned? Such as, I think if I start engaging it, my community will reject me. That yeah. can be scary in the church. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not 
a trustworthy Christian anymore because I have these questions. So what do I what do I believe it will cost me if I don't hold this information as dogmatic? That, that yeah. might jumpstart jumpstart that uh, spelunking in the cave of your heart. Okay, number two. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a great um, quote by um, I think it's Upton Sinclair that says um, it's impossible to get a ma- get, to get a man to understand a thing when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people, you have a lot of pastors out there. Um, I, I don't need to debate with them certain things. You would lose your job if you believed this thing. You, 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 you're a part of an institution. Um, your entire livelihood will be at stake. It's impossible to get you to understand. You cannot understand. You cannot possibly understand what I am telling you because you have pinned yourself in a corner, in a corner vocationally, because of the institution that you're a part of. So, it, it, it on very rare occasion do people defect on some of those core issues. On very rare occasion are people willing to pay the price to defect on those issues. So, I'm less interested in debating people who have a, a, uh, a financial stake in the game, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I mean, I can go out and write an article about anything I want to write about. People will pay me. People will say, yeah, but you know, you'll, you've got your liberal friends. And you're right, there are relational pressures. There, there are always pressures keeping you in place. But it's different when you are a W-2 employee and 100% of your income is based on you not understanding what I'm telling you. So that is a power. In a capitalistic society, that is an almost insurmountable force, is, is the weight of your own salary. Uh, to go back, I would say the second thing that you can do is find safe spaces to have these conversations. And the best way to do that is through books. Like, how scary would it be to mm. read a text? You know, we in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the world that I come from, they were having a full-throated debate about critical race theory. Do you think any of the people standing at those microphones and speaking about critical race theory read Isabel Wilkerson? Do you think they've read some of the key texts that are a part of discussion? No, they haven't read those books. Nobody's interacted with those books. They've created a boogeyman and they've said why they should be afraid of that boogeyman. And now all of their energy has gone into attacking that boogeyman. One of the safest things would be, what if, what if you were to find the issue that you're concerned about or that you're really passionate about, read the top three texts that the other side is reading and do it as best you can with an open mind. Not trying to deconstruct it. If you're the kind of person that wants to write the counter arguments in the, in the margins, throw your pens away. Just read it. <laughs> Just let it hit you. And then when you get done with it, ask yourself, could any of this be true? And if so, what difference would that make in my life? Most people will tell you they're not even, I don't even need to read those books, right? They'll say things like this to you. They're not interested in having that debate. But if they are, one of the best ways to do it is you don't go to Twitter, you don't call your neighbor and, you know, you say, hey, I've got a, I've got a, a, a black neighbor. So what I'm going to do is bring them over and we're going to start debating over dinner. No, you don't need to do that. You need to go educate yourself. There are plenty of places where you can go read about these things. And then... Later on, once you kind of know where the guardrails and the ideas sit, you can oftentimes then find conversation partners. But it's, it's not usually helpful for two different people entrenched in their ways of thinking to just sort of begin colliding with each other. They, it, 
they will often become um, more entrenched in their own views. It will actually calcify what they believe because it becomes a battle of egos, right? And, mm-hmm. and if if you being wrong is the only way I can be right, if you if your belief being false is the only way I can say I, I stand with the truth, there's this in, you're incentivized in these conversations to get more and more and more convinced that you're already right. And so I, I tend to tell people to start with some very, very basic ways of dipping their toes in, in these conversations by educating themselves first. That's, and that's so great, because if capital T truth is as weighty as it is said to be, then there is no fear of getting some information that will wreck capital T truth. Mm-hmm. But, but I might just find that there are some threads of commonality that's like, oh, that's what you were concerned with? Well, I'm concerned about that, too. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love that thought. I absolutely love that thought. I had a <laughs> I used to have uh, groups of of college guys uh, get together and and we would have Bible studies. Except we would use uh, "Why I'm Not a Christian" by Bertrand Russell. That would be our Bible study book because our conversations were deeper and more interesting than a book that has a bunch of fill in the blank. I'll, I'll write a couple paragraphs and then tell you what to answer. We had the best times with books like that. And mm-hmm. we all learned so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more fun than it sounds for any listeners that think that what Jonathan just said sounds scary or even subversive. It's only subversive to open your heart up to actually be able to be passionate about these topics with a lot more grace and love because you come into it caring to understand other people's hearts. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have that, then fuck the rest of your religion because it ain't worth nothing. <laughs> well, Sorry, uh, was that was that overstated? No, I feel like it was. <laughs> I, I, I want to, this is good, and I, I know we're at a natural stopping point, but I you could save this and cut it into the intro if you want, but everything that we talked about today comes as a result of working on recovery. You know, for me, the journey of recovery was about deconstructing a mental model that I had built my entire life around how and when I could operate and think and behave. And I just, I see so much overlap. So, I mean, for listeners that are out there thinking, I'm not quite sure, this sounds scary, or I could never go there. I think that's what we just talked about, what Jonathan just described is the heart, is the center point of recovery. And so I I would just challenge our listeners um, to think about, and maybe even listen to this podcast two or three times. Um, at different points in, in your own personal journey or, you know, different points throughout the next 30 days, because they're what Jonathan's talking about un, is, is part of unlocking the gift of what um, resurrection after after addiction ultimately looks like. Um, we're just using different language, different examples, different life experiences to, to say the same thing. Beautiful. Jonathan, we didn't even start. We never touched on the place we said we were going to start. And man, I that would have been a great conversation too. But well, I love the way your mind works. 
Oh gosh. Well, you know what? We will we will have to do it again, hopefully in less than than five years' time. <laughs> Absolutely. How do people get in touch with your work uh, to to look at more that you've written and thoughts you've had? Where do they go? Well, you can you can obviously follow me on social media. I have a uh, a newsletter um, called the Faith and Culture Five. So it's a, actually it was really apropos to this conversation, um, I send out like the top five stories each week and they're not all from one perspective, um, but they're all on faith and culture and they will expose you to ideas that hopefully will challenge you and make you think and stretch you a little bit. And so, um, they can subscribe to my newsletter. They can buy some of my books and go to my website, you know, all of the, all of the traditional ways you can connect with folks in the digital age. And, and bear this in mind, dear listeners, I love that this conversation isn't about you changing your beliefs or your thoughts, because I don't even know what your beliefs or thoughts are. This is all about how do I allow my heart to get bigger in the world that I live in. And the only way I can do that is to engage the people that I least want to engage in their thoughts and their beliefs and their passions, because they're just as passionate as I am. And we want to know because we want our heart and our love to grow. So take a risk. Just dabble in this. It's safe. You don't have to change. Just dabble. So check out some of Jonathan's stuff and uh, start start watching what happens with your mind and your heart. As always, if you have questions or thoughts, if this made you angry and you just feel a need to write about it, well, send Rob an email Rob, what's your email? No, send your send your thoughts to us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We are out of time for today, and we're going to close it right here. So I'm Aaron. I'm Rob. And I'm Jonathan. <laughs> and we are your pals here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Someone give me an arc. Arg. Arg. <laughs> The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.